Hey friends, welcome to the Great Things Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Herring. Let's be honest, things aren't going too great in the world right now. I think we can all agree on that. But I've got some good news. This space is created for you to join in on conversations of how sometimes the hardest, lowest moments of our lives can produce the greatest joys. So come on in and jump on this virtual couch with me as we talk about some good news and great things. Well, friends, today wraps up our last episode of 2021, and I couldn't be more excited to finish this season and year with my friend Sharon. She's an author, speaker, and leads a church with her husband in North Carolina. I've had the privilege of working with Sharon on different projects over the past few years, and she's about as authentic as it gets. Her books, Free of Me and Nice, have been super impactful in my own life, so I knew I had to have this conversation with her and share it with y'all. So let's jump right in. Sharon, I'm so excited to finally have you on the podcast. I remember talking to you about this back in like 2019, and you were so kind to encourage me and agree to come on here. So I'm glad the day is finally here. I can't believe that was before the pandemic. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a lot sooner, but the Lord had, you know, different plans. And so I get it. Yeah, I get it. Well, I just it's good to see your face and hear your voice. It's been a while. I know it has been. I'm I'm so excited to see you. I know we met back in like, I want to say 2017 or 2018. Mm -hmm. Um, I think at a conference first and then we've done shoots together mm-hmm. for Right Now Media. Mm-hmm. So yes. you're someone that I always look forward to working with and seeing. Oh, well, I feel the same. So for anyone who doesn't know, who is Sharon Hottie Miller? So I live in Durham, North Carolina with my husband and three kids. And my husband and I lead a church together called Bright City Church, which we planted three years ago. So when I first met you, Let's see. I can't remember. I don't think the church had launched yet. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we have half the life of our church has been spent in a pandemic, which is a whole thing. But yeah, we, we lead Bright City Church. I am the teaching pastor at our church. And then I'm also an author and a speaker, and I've done a number of videos with Right Now, which has been super fun. Yes, we love them. So give us a little bit of your background. Did you grow up in church? I did. I was raised Presbyterian, PCUSA, which is very formal. You know, it's Protestant mainline. I grew up in a church that had this very big stained glass, you know, full choir sanctuary. It was just very, very formal to stand up, sit down, you know, the call and response, all of that. And the PCUSA is also more progressive, I would say, is is the the theology that I was raised in. Although my parents, I would actually say, are, are less. They're more traditionally evangelical than the church that I was raised in. But yeah, that's how that's how I was raised, and it was a really, in many ways, like a wonderful, wonderful church. But when I got to college, I really started growing in my faith. And I went in college, I went through a really judgmental phase, honestly, where I was, I became really legalistic and I would go home and sort of lecture my parents about how, you know, they don't give, you know, they don't present the gospel. (laughs) (laughs) But thankfully, my parents were really gracious and just let me sort of go through that phase. (laughs) (laughs) 
but that's how I think we all go through that. Yeah. Well, I think that's actually, it's healthy. It's you're differentiating yourself. Every person goes yeah. through that where they, they, or they should, like it's healthy to differentiate yourself from your childhood and, and what you were taught and to make it your own. And that's just what yes. that process looked like for me. Yeah. So speaking of making it your own, mm-hmm. like when did you fully surrender your life to Jesus? Mm-hmm. Like when and how did that happen? You know, I remember at a very young age, probably around six or so, I remember being in Sunday school and one of my Sunday school teachers explaining what it meant to be a Christian, you know, just that you believed that Jesus, you know, was your savior and that he died and uh, was raised again. You know, they, they had explained that, but it was not in a very you know, altar call sort of a way. It, w- it was much mm-hmm. more, this is simply what it means to be, to profess, you know, <laughs> that you're a Christian. And I remember as a six-year-old thinking, I believe that. And it was really kind of as simple as that. And so I don't have a really dramatic before and after story. I was much more raised to, I don't remember a time where i I don't remember not knowing Jesus and I don't yeah. remember not praying to him and, and believing in him and, and loving him. And for a long time, I thought that was kind of a, you know, a lesser testimony, but I think people, now I understand the importance of it. People come to God in so many different ways. And yeah. my story is important because it validates all the other stories that are like mine, just yeah. the different ways that people come. So yeah, but but it wasn't really until college that I discerned a call to ministry and, and really felt like, you know, this is everything that I want to make my life about was in college. Yeah. What was that like for you? Like, how did you get started in ministry? Yeah. So I I remember in backing up in high school when I... Well, it was, it's maybe even a little bit younger than that. I remember having a camp counselor who was really crucial for me. One summer, she would do devotionals at night. I went to the same Christian camp all growing up, but she had a way of explaining scripture that it was this eye-opening experience for me where I thought for the first time, wait a second, the Bible is not just this old book of wise sayings that describe yeah. what happens, you know, with Jesus. The Bible is actually the word of God in the sense that it is life, <laughs> you know, that it is. I yeah. remember thinking, like, does anyone know that this is in here? Like, do, do other people understand that this is like a treasure trove? <laughs> yeah. So that was another big light bulb for me was in high school and my faith became much more important to me. And, but at the same time, I had no Christian friends in high school and even our youth group growing up, it was, everyone was kind of there because they were expected to. And so once I got in college, I got really involved with FCA And that was the first time I really had Christian community. And that was the first time I started attending an evangelical church that was engaging my heart in worship, I would say more. And Mm -hmm. so I really dove in deep. I got really involved in FCA, really rose up through the ranks of leadership there just immediately. And as I was leading FCA and leading Bible studies and was ultimately president 
I continued to receive just affirmation that this is something that you are called to. And probably somewhere along the way is where I realized this is what I want to do with my life. You're like you went all the way through school. You have a PhD. Mm-hmm. She's a whole doctor. <laughs> and that's something that I really admire and respect about you is how far you've gone to really know the Bible mm-hmm. and, and yeah. theology so well. Well, a big part of that. So another piece of my story that is is really important is I graduated from college. And then I wasn't really sure what to do at that point. At the time I was attending a Southern Baptist church. And so as a woman, I really was not sure what, what were my options. And so after college, I moved back to Charlotte, which is where I grew up. And I, for a year worked for Proverbs 31 ministries. And so I was just an intern at that time. It was a very, very small ministry. And I just traveled around with Lisa Turkhurst and learned a lot about women's ministry. But it was a really interesting experience because Lisa has a really powerful story. And so much of what we would do at conferences is she would share her story and and how God met her in her pain. And I would see you know, women just healed. And it was always this really cathartic experience for women and just a lot of powerful things happening through Lisa sharing her story. But I was also looking around at other women at the time and and women who are probably like in their 20s wouldn't know this. But at the time, like Beth Moore, you know, Lisa, like every woman I could look to who was writing and speaking their story was their platform. Yeah. And their story is where they got their authority from. Because at the time, women, there just were so few options that if you had a really powerful testimony, that could be your springboard into ministry. Mm. And it tells you a lot just about what trailblazers these women were and like how creative they were to sort of create this, you know, these opportunities to do ministry when there just were so few. However, I had just shared with you my testimony, (laughs) which is boring. (laughs) Well, it's very relatable. So to a lot of people. And so I was sitting there thinking, okay, this is the landscape for women is you have to have a story and I don't have one. Yeah. And so I was like, well, what, what do I do now? And at some point I, I had the thought, wait a second, if a man is called to ministry, it's not because he has a good story. It's just Mm -hmm. because he's called to ministry. Yeah. And so I'm going to do what most men do, which is to just go to seminary. (laughs) Yeah. And so after a year of, of working at Proverbs, which was wonderful, and I learned a lot, I thought, okay, I... As, as amazing as, as Lisa is, my path has to be different from hers. And so I decided to go back to school. And that was that was kind of what took me through getting my MDiv and then getting my PhD. Well, I actually didn't really know the details of that. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, I, I love stories and I love the power of stories. But I'm, I'm mm-hmm. even sitting here thinking like, you know, when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, there wasn't some crazy you know, transformation that happened, they just dropped their nets and they went like, that's, that's their story, you know? And so Mm -hmm. everyone has a story. It may like, they're all different, but it doesn't disqualify us from being able to 
like you said, live out our calling. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's so such important. a great, that's such a great reminder. It, it's not like Peter was a cocaine addict yeah. and then he, you know, met Jesus. They were just kind of ordinary men living their ordinary lives exactly. and, and Jesus meets us, you know, in all these different places. Yeah, for sure. So what would you say is the most tangible way that you've seen the gospel impact your life now? You know, I, the thing that I love about following Jesus and growing in my faith is that resurrection and revival are not just one-time events, but they are a way of life. And so you, you are invited into this resurrection lifestyle. You, you are in the process of, you know, you get saved, but then you're working out your salvation, so to speak, for the rest of your life. Like you're becoming more and more saved yeah. in a sense, like you're becoming more and more free. And, you know, one beautiful analogy that scripture uses is marriage. You know, when you get married on your wedding day, there's this spiritual union that takes place where you, the two become one. But at the same time, for a lot of married couples, we don't actually know each other very well on our wedding day. We spend the rest of our lives becoming more and more one, you know, living into that spiritual reality. And salvation is a lot like that. When you get saved, you, you, there's a, a spiritual reality that takes place, but you also spend the rest of your life living into that salvation as well. And that is what I, I've loved about following Jesus is just that process of becoming more and more free, that, that even though my testimony on day one was not dramatic. You know, I wasn't as a six-year-old, you know, I wasn't lost, like, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Asking like, what is the meaning of life? Yep. You know, <laughs> why was I created? You know, I wasn't asking any of those questions, yeah. but as an adult, you know, really testing out and, and understanding all other ground is sinking sand, mm-hmm. you know, understanding that more and more and more, that has been the beauty of the gospel for me is, is having those moments. And, and really my first book was one of those, those revelations of being set free in an entirely new way. Yeah. And I know that there will be more moments of that to come. Yeah, I love that so much. This podcast is sponsored by Faithful Counseling, a platform of better help. If you're looking for a mental health professional who is a practicing Christian, Faithful Counseling may be a great option for you. Faithful Counseling is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you with the right counselor. I love that they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about because it's always a good time to invest in your mental health. Financial aid is available, plus we have a special offer for Great Things listeners. Get 10% off your first month by going to faithfulcounseling.com slash great things. And of course, the link is in the show notes. Thanks again to Faithful Counseling for sponsoring this episode. So I actually do want to talk about your book, Free of Me. Okay. Um, okay. I can honestly say, Sharon, that it is, and I know I've told you this before, but it's truly one of my favorite books. Like I've read it multiple times and it convicts me and challenges me every time. And I'm not just saying that to, you know, boost your ego or anything. I'm just 
really thankful that the Lord put this message on your heart and that you were obedient to open up about your own struggles um, and point us to the gospel through it. So what prompted you to write Free of Me? So the journey leading up to that, as I've already shared, I was called into ministry. You know, I went back to seminary, and but also during that time, I was starting to write more. I was starting to speak more, to teach, all of that. And early on, I really found inherent joy in that work. Like it was enough to simply be doing it because I was called to it. To, to, it was enough to be doing it simply for Jesus. But somewhere along the way, the analogy I use a lot is, you know, we're called to run this race of faith and we are meant to just look straight ahead at, at Jesus. But somewhere along the way, I started looking at the runners who were right next to me and comparing myself to them, or I was looking at the runners who were a few paces ahead of me and needing acknowledgement and affirmation from them. And if I didn't compare well, or if I didn't receive acknowledgement or affirmation, I was just devastated. Mm -hmm. I was was shattered and I became really fragile. I became really insecure and I could not figure out why for the first time in my ministry experience, it wasn't enough to just be doing it for God's approval. Like why did I so desperately crave the approval of man? And so I responded to the insecurity by reading, you know, books about insecurity, articles about insecurity, uh, you know, looking at scripture and asking what, what does God say about me? You know, his, how he loves me and how he created me with, with purpose and intention and delight and just speaking those things whenever I'd feel insecure, speaking those things over me. And I did that for months and months, just trying to confront this insecurity in my heart and at the end of all of that research and all of that searching scripture, I realized that it hadn't helped at all, that whatever was broken inside of me, all the literature about insecurity had not touched it. And so that caused me to realize, okay, there's something else that is, is feeding this mm-hmm. and I need to back up and I need to reapproach this problem differently. And so one of the things that I did to reapproach the problem differently was rather than search scripture for what does the Bible say about me, instead, I opened up the Bible and asked, okay, when people in the Bible feel insecure, feel inadequate, and they they went to God with that insecurity, how did God yeah. actually respond to them? And that was the epiphany (laughs) of my life because so many people, Moses, Jeremiah, Simon, Peter, Mm -hmm. these men, they go to God and and say, I I don't feel good enough. Uh, I don't think I'm up for what you've called me to. And God never says, it's okay. You're so great. Like, look at all the ways I love you. It's going to be okay. God doesn't respond that way to any of yeah. them. <laughs> so true. He, you know, with Moses, he says, who gave human beings their mouths? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> is it not I, the Lord? Yeah. Now go and I will tell you what to say. 
And it, that was the moment Jen Wilkin puts it really amazingly in her book, Women of the Word, that she says that God changes the subject off of Moses's inability and onto God's ability. And that was the beginning of having this realization that there are actually two causes of insecurity, but we only ever talk about the one, and that is low self-esteem. And I would define low self-esteem as not seeing yourself truthfully, not seeing yourself the way God sees you, not seeing yourself the way scripture describes you. And that is a very real and important wound that scripture does address with the truth of who you are and God's love for you. And so that, that matters. Mm -hmm. However, there's another cause of insecurity that we almost never talk about, and that is self-preoccupation. Yes. And that when you make yourself, you know, the center of things, when you treat everything as kind of a referendum on you, it raises the stakes extremely high and it becomes extremely stressful and you become very fragile. And that's what we see with Moses, with Jeremiah, with, with Simon Peter and, and other people in scripture who think that what God has called them to is all about them. And the irony here is if you mistake the cause of your insecurity, if you don't, if you fail to recognize actually what's making me insecure is just my self-focus and you treat it as if it is low self-esteem by heaping affirmation on yourself, mm -hmm. then what you're actually doing, even though you're using biblical affirmation, what you're doing is you are reinforcing the problem mm -hmm. instead of correcting it. And that is what was happening with me. That's why all the stuff on insecurity was not helping me is it was reinforcing the problem instead of correcting it. And so that was, that's the very long answer to your question is having this, this wake up call that I had made my ministry about me, but then also having to walk out, how do I refocus on God? Because it's not just as simple as like, oh, well, I just need to refocus on God. Well, if that if it was that simple, I wouldn't we wouldn't need a book on it. You right. know? <laughs> but but that journey of of learning to refocus everything in my life back on where it is meant to be, that set me free in such a radical way that continues to liberate me and, and serve me. It served me in church planting that I, I realized this is a message that other people need to hear and will probably benefit from just as I have. Yeah, I'm so glad that you touched on those two things because that's actually kind of what captured me in the beginning of the book was the self-esteem versus the self-preoccupation because mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. so important. Um, and I love towards mm -hmm. the beginning how you said self-focus assumes that every slight, every rejection, every awkward interaction must be about you. Self-focus okay. also magnifies your flaws because you are constantly aware of them. And I think about that in my own life and how many times have I left a conversation and replayed everything I said over and over and then uh -huh. worried about what people thought of me or if I overshared or if someone doesn't text me back, if there's any kind of tension in the relationship. And all these things just lead to spiraling thoughts and they're usually just self-focused. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you end up, you know, one of the one of the kind of metaphors I use is I talk about how we treat everyone like mirrors that simply reflect back on yes. us. 
you know, we do this, we do this with our spouses, we do this with our kids, we do this with our friends, we do this with our jobs, you know, it's all kind of looking at these things and asking, what does this say about me? Mm-hmm. And one of the consequences of that, when you treat everyone as just a mirror pointing back on you is you don't actually see them. Yeah. You know, you, you don't, you leave those conversations thinking, is what I said, okay, you know, did I misspeak? And the question you're not really asking is, was I a good friend to them? You know, like, did they feel loved? Like, (laughs) you know, and, and it really is like, you, you think you're being loving by asking, was I, you know, did I say the right thing? But really you're still, you're still thinking about yourself. Yeah. I was actually going to ask if you would talk a little bit about the mirror reflex, because you mentioned a story in the book about how you were Mm -hmm. eating a meal with someone, but you were so distracted by looking at yourself in the mirror behind her. And she noticed, honestly, that changed how often I look at mirrors in public. Like Mm -hmm. when I see any kind of reflection, not just on the outward aspect, but the inner as well, I really try not to look at myself unless I feel the need to, like if I feel like I have something Uh on my face or whatever. So that has really shifted my perspective, Mm -hmm. even in the way I see mirrors now. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, there's there's been research done on how many times a day we look in a mirror, you know, whether it's an actual mirror, just like a reflective surface and how I like some studies say, you know, eight times a day, which I just say there's no way, you know, and I found another study that said 16. I found one study of men that said men average 23 times a day. Wow. But was re- what was really funny is the di- the reason that men and women look in the mirror is different. Women look in the mirror to make sure everything's kind of in place, but men look in the mirror to admire themselves. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Which I'm like, oh, that sounds so nice. I would love to, to have that life, you know? <laughs> yeah, seriously. We're looking so good today, but either way, it is, it is this really powerful human compulsion to look at your reflection in physical mirrors. But I think that it's, it's deeper than yeah. that. We're constantly looking at different things in our lives, looking for feedback onto ourselves. And when we do that, we miss, first of all, those, those things are not oriented towards us. They exist for love of God and others but we, we end up not seeing people for who they are and like what's actually going on with them because we're really just seeing ourselves. So when it comes to stewarding appearance, possessions, family, you talk about rooting our images in mission. Uh-huh. In chapter five, you said, God can use everything about us inside and out to draw people to him. Uh-huh. And the more we lean into that mission, the greater peace we will find. Uh-huh. In contrast, when we make our images about us, there's only uh-huh. ever striving. And that really also made me stop and think, like, yeah, Yeah. he really can use everything about us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I talk about image management as another concept that I use, and it's, it's very similar. It's kind of a different way of talking about that mirror reflex, but with image management, it's exactly how it sounds. You know, you're managing how people see you. And we think of this most naturally with social media, you know, Instagram, the image you're presenting, we think of image management with, you know, what you wear, you know, your makeup, all of that. But what was really eye-opening to me was discovering that image management can also extend to your relationships. So if you are treating your spouse, if you're treating your kids as if they are a part of your image, then that means you will have to manage them. And we have probably all been on the 
receiving end of that as well. If, if you have a parent who you felt like you were being pressured to perform or to look a certain way because they were acting as if you were a part of their image and how you know toxic that is. And so image management plays out in a lot of different ways. But, but one way that we really do think this is meant to be about me is my actual physical appearance. You know, this is like the one thing that that it's it's my face, it's my body. You know, this this is me in some ways. And so I want this to be like the best, you know, image I can present. But it it really that idea that every part of ourselves is is meant to be about loving God and loving others is is true. And it's it's powerful to remember that part of what what Jesus altered was his image in some sense that when he became human and and we're told scripture tells us that Jesus was not even like particularly attractive yeah. <laughs> which is so weird to think which about I, think I know like an interesting detail that he wasn't super attractive but you know Jesus the the son in the trinity is beautiful and glorious and and full of splendor but instead of you know just staying there up in heaven at the right hand of the father, he forsakes his splendor and he lowers himself and he humbles himself and he, he puts on, you know, modesty. And I think of that as a really powerful way to think about appearance, to think about, about image that it's not that, that your body or your face or any of those things are bad or that, you know, wearing makeup or, you know, wearing fashion is wrong. You know, those are all, those can be creative expressions of ourselves, but at the same time, having that missional perspective of how can I love my neighbors? How can I, especially as women, like, how can I lower that bar of striving for all the women around me instead of raising it even higher? And I think that that is, is a gospel perspective yeah. on those things is, is how can I not live in like a, you know, wear a burlap sack or something like, I don't think that that is, is called for, but at the same time, how do I reverse the momentum of our culture, which basically says your value comes from your beauty? Yeah. And I don't remember specifically which chapter it's in, but there was a little story you mentioned about apologizing to someone oh, yeah. for uh -huh. how you looked. Even that too, I was like, yeah, I yeah. need to stop apologizing for my appearance, uh -huh. how my home looks and yeah. things of the sort, because it really is selfish yeah. and draws attention to things people aren't even noticing or thinking about. Yeah. I tell a story about running into someone I know at Target yeah. at like 7am and I didn't have any makeup on. And the first thing I said to them was, I'm sorry, I'm not wearing makeup. <laughs> And as if them having to see my actual face right. was offensive, right, <laughs> you yep. know, but I really realized later, you know, a lot of people in my life, they kind of see me as a high capacity person. I think they see me as, as someone who, you know, I just do whatever I set my mind to and, and things just work out. And I think it's important. Makeup is a pretty low stakes form of vulnerability, but I think it's important for people to see you without your armor mm -hmm. on, like whatever that is, yeah. that that is an opportunity for them to see, oh, she's normal. She's ordinary. She, she struggles. You know, she does, she's not always put together yeah. that that can actually be a gift to the people around you. That's so true. And definitely. Yeah. Freeing, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and then another topic that's so important right now, and you actually touched on it a minute ago, is especially with the rise of social media platforms um, and the temptation to make our callings about ourselves 
Uh, you mm-hmm. quoted Christine yeah. Kane in chapter eight, which said people are trying to build their platform more than their character. And that's just mm. so true. All over scripture, we see it talk about dying to ourselves, picking up our crosses and following Christ. What warning would you give to this generation that doesn't want to die, but wants to have a bigger mm-hmm. voice? Yeah. So uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at a church planting conference and after I did a session, a young woman came up to me. I think she was in her early 20s. And she said, I feel called to ministry, but I am concerned about my motives. Like, I feel like God is calling me to something great, but I don't want to do that for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel really stuck because I can feel those that selfish ambition inside of me. And so what should I do? And I said, you know, on the one hand, I'm glad that you're searching your motives. Yeah. I think we should all search our motives. I think that is very healthy and, and wise because we are all sinners and we all have sinful motives. Every one of us, we all do. And so if you don't feel that at all, then it makes me think you might not know yourself very well. Yeah. But that said, I, I said to her, if God is calling you to ministry, go and go say yes, obey, go into ministry and know that he will correct your motives mm-hmm. in ministry. But that is kind of the catch that I think a lot of people miss once they're already in ministry is that correction will come, but we don't see it that way in ministry. Very often when God is humbling us, when when he is correcting our motives, when he is pruning our motives, we see it either as a spiritual attack or we see it as just plain old failure. Mm-hmm. But we don't see it as maybe this is a healthy season of pruning for me, where God is humbling me and refining, you know, why it is I'm I'm in here. And so that's what I would say is if you are called, you know, to, to ministry, you know, search your motives, have people in your life to hold you accountable, but also go forward in confidence, knowing that God will give you a lot of opportunities to correct your motives. Yeah. You just have to be ready to receive it when it comes. And that is that is one of the number one things that I think really destroys ministries is that when the opportunities for humility and humiliation come is we fight it Mm -hmm. and we reject it and we explain it away as coming from the enemy when that is not always the case. And so that would be my advice. That's so, so good. Thank you for sharing that. The other powerful challenge in the same chapter is about being disobedient in our callings. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read another quote and so bear with me, but you said a self-centered calling conflicts with Mm -hmm. God-centered callings because Mm God-centered callings always lead to a cross. If your calling Mm. is about your image or your reputation or your comfort and convenience, it will eventually diverge from the path of Christ. At some point, God will ask you to do something that isn't about you or doesn't feel good or requires you to suffer, and you will have to make that choice. So I feel like that's a really scary thing for a lot of people, especially in this age of cancel culture. So could you talk about what that's been like for you and how you've had to submit Mm -hmm. to your God-centered calling, even when it's been Mm -hmm. uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah. You know, this season has been full of those opportunities because our culture is is so divided right now in every possible way. And what's especially impossible about it is that people are complex. And so they don't even divide. We, we sort of 
look at the world and say there's the progressives and there's the conservatives. Mm-hmm. And our most people do not align that neatly. You know, there are people I know who are very, very politically conservative, you know, maybe don't want to talk about race at all, but are also have been very conservative about COVID. Like they don't want to go anywhere, don't want to be around anyone, like want everyone to wear masks. You know, that is not the narrative. Like we, we kind of say, if you are this on this issue, then you're also this on this issue. And that is just not the case. Mm And so because people are so complicated and because there are so many different fractures in our culture right now, it means that I can align with one person on one issue, but then not align with that same person on a different issue. Like in the last year and a half, how we let on race, how we let on masks, all of that, I can offend one person with either one of those things. (laughs) And so we have constantly experience criticism Mm -hmm. and rejection and, and people, you know, don't just leave because they disagree. They will impugn your character and your faith. And they'll tell you like, you're forsaking scripture. You're not following Jesus anymore. And so in those moments when you can kill yourself trying to people please to everyone, which is, is an impossible task Or you can, you know, fix your eyes on Christ, you know, bury your nose in his word, submit yourself to wise counsel, and then just do the best you can. And it has to be, you know, enough at the end of the day. But it really has been a season of constant, relentless rejection. And so it it really, if you're in it because you want to grow, you know, this flashy ministry or this, you know, big church or whatever, at the end of the day, that is going to be, you know, challenged. Yeah. And, and, and really you're going to have to ask, why am I doing this? Because if, if I'm doing this for me, it's not very rewarding. Yeah. So true. <laughs> like I'm not enjoying so I think that's a big a big piece to know that counting the cost is not just a figure of speech, but it, it it is if you're following Jesus, it will cost you. It will cost you, and to not be surprised when that comes, but but also to know that a key and essential part of our credibility in the world is whether or not we are willing to suffer with the suffering, and I think that has also been a, a huge unveiling in this season of the church is people kind of realizing, oh, Christians, you feel bad about stuff that is happening in the world. You feel bad about people that are hurting. You feel bad, you know, about poverty, but you don't want to touch it. Like you don't want to get near it. And you certainly aren't going to sacrifice anything Mm -hmm. to see these things made right. And that is so unlike what Jesus did for us, you know, all that he gave up, all that he suffered to see us healed. And so to also know like that is a rubber meets the road kind of a thing that, that we have to confront is, is to know that that so much of what we are called to is actually suffering with the suffering. And you can't, you cannot get around that and be faithful to Jesus. But when it comes, it is so disorienting and scary and the enemy seizes on that and will tell you this isn't how it's supposed to be. This is harder than it should be. Um, you must be failing when in reality, no, this is exactly 
what you signed up for in the first place. Well, yeah. So those are just a few takeaways from Free Me that I love. And I know that you've also written Nice, which is also mm-hmm. another great book. And we don't have time to go into more of that really. But um, are you allowed to talk about your new book coming out next year? Yeah. So my my next book is called The Cost of Control, Why We Crave It, The Anxiety It Gives Us, and The Real Power God Promises. And that's coming out August 2022. So exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would definitely love to have another conversation with you about that when it gets okay. closer, because that's just such a timely and important topic, especially with everything going on in our world. Yeah. But yeah. So I have one more question for you that I ask every week. Okay. What is a great thing that you're into right now? Okay, so I am an Enneagram 7. Me too. <laughs> and so I, as much as I just talked to you about suffering mm-hmm. and pain, which <laughs> is high in the season of ministry, uh-huh. I cope with that by retreating from it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the thing that is like really my jam right now is Hallmark Christmas movies. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I actually um, set up my Christmas tree this weekend. That's so, amazing. I was like, you know what? It's it's cool outside now. I want to take uh-huh. advantage of this. Yeah. I want to really feel Christmassy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I got to yeah. turn on more Hallmark movies and just enjoy the season. Yeah, I started like they they started in late October and I was I was here for it. Like I've been watching those and they just are every, even though they're stupid, you know, they're not always very good, but you know, it's always going to be okay. Yep. You know that the villains are not even that bad. Yep. You know that the thing about Hallmark Christmas movies that is truly bananas is the breakups. Yes. Breakups. I would give a million dollars to have had at least one breakup that was as easy right? and <laughs> clean and straightforward as the breakups are on Hallmark where they, it could be a broken engagement yeah. and they're just kind of like, you're, you know what? We're just not a good fit, you know? <laughs> yes. And, and we could still be friends. And they're, they're both like, yeah, ex- it, like it's totally fine. No tears, no devastation, no bitterness. And it's every time the breakups are so neat and tidy. That's, it's just not realistic at all, but hilarious. I love it. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite Hallmark Christmas movie? I do. So there's one called My Christmas Love. Okay. Do you know that one? Um, you know, they all kind of get That's a very generic mixed up. Name. Yeah. That's a very generic <laughs> so it, the premise of it is <clears throat> there is uh, a young woman who goes home for Christmas And she starts receiving all these gifts for the 12 days of Christmas. Like she gets like a partridge in a pear tree and she's, and it's from a secret admirer. Yes, I know which one. So she's trying to figure out who is sending the gifts. And because she's in her hometown, she thinks it's all these like ex-boyfriends. And that was one of the few movies where I did not see the ending coming. Mm. I was genuinely surprised and it was very heartfelt. Like it, it's one of the few movies that that makes me kind of emotional to watch. And then I love the main the main girl in it. I think is hysterical, and her chemistry with the guy is great. And so it's it's also one of the few movies that my husband really likes. I think it's well, it's a mutual friend of ours, Aaron Moon, uh-huh. does some hilarious. Just I don't even know what you'd call them, but on her stories, she does like oh, talking really? about these Christmas movies. There's the one on Netflix, the Royal one. 
Um, oh, they are yeah. hilarious. Watch them uh-huh. yeah. yeah. I mean, they're so ridiculous. Some of them are just beyond in terms of their stupidity, but I just love them. Yeah. They're so good. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that that's your great thing. Cause, uh, it's around Christmas time right now. So that's perfect. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. But Sharon, thank you so much for coming on and having this important conversation with me. I'm not sure what's next on our calendar in the future, but I hope to see you again soon. I know. I hope to see you soon too. I am so, so thankful for Sharon and her God-given wisdom. I hope as this year comes to a close with the Christmas season in full swing and as we jump into the new year, that we'll be reminded of the freedom that comes from not making everything about ourselves. I love how she talked about her salvation story and that she didn't think it meant much, but it actually means everything. Every encounter we have with Jesus is important and gives us new life. It's not always about how we started following Jesus, it's the fact that we just start following Jesus. And we follow him because he made the world's biggest sacrifice for us by taking on the penalty of sin by dying the death we deserved on a cross. But just like it was promised, he got up out of his grave a few days later, and because he lives, we get to live. I hope that encourages you as much as it does me. If you'd like to know more about how to follow Jesus, head over to greatthings.fm resources. That's also where you'll find a place to submit prayer requests and all of Sharon's resources are there as well. What a fun season one this has been. Thank you all so much for listening and for your support. We'll be back in January with season two and I am so, so excited. We have some incredible guests lined up. So if you haven't already, be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you're feeling really generous and in the Christmas giving spirit, please rate and review it. That helps us get the word out so more people can hear the good news. Thanks so much for joining us today. I hope you'll be back next season for more great things.